Thank you for tuning in to this message from Kingdom Ears International, headquarters located in Flagstaff, Arizona. All right. So, Torah portion 13, we get into Hagar and Ishmael. And it's so interesting, you know, to get messages, make this make sense. Um, And this is why I always want to teach on how to drink from the well right? Not just lead you to it, but how to drink it essentially. Because when you read something at face value, especially from the perspective of American culture, you know, a very Greek one dimensional, it is what it is. There's no reading between the lines. There's no, it's just, it's just read and you read it at face value and you're like, okay, there's some like weird things going on here. So Sarah tells Abram to do something. He listens, then gets mad at him for doing it immediately. Hagar is like a pawn in this whole thing. And then she gets afflicted and like pushed out. But at the same time, she was being mean to Sarah. But the God of the Israelites meets Hagar It's one of the first, well, it is the first time that we meet um, Adonai Ro'i, which is the God who sees. We're going to get into all that. It's also the first time we see the angel of the Lord, which means this is face-to-face contact, guys. This is is not a vision. This is not uh, a flaming uh, pot or a, a, um, a torch. Like, this is not a manifestation of Yahweh. This isn't a a vision. This isn't a dream. This isn't a word. This is his face is shown to Hagar, who is an Egyptian woman who births Ishmael. Now I'm going to kind of go backwards to forward. Well, never mind. I'm not going to go backwards to forward, but I mean, and then, and then we're just left with like, so now you're pregnant and I'm going to meet you face to face, but oh, by the way, your son is going to suck. You know, let me prophesy over you because your, your son is going to be against everyone and everyone's going to be against him. So have fun. Go, go, go back, go back to Sarah who afflicted you, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm a good guy. I'm, 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 I'm the angel of the Lord. Right. I mean, you read this at face value and you're like, cool. What does this all mean? Right. Which is why I want to teach and to train in that reading things at face value or just reading things as they are is like, what the heck? Um, so I'm hoping that we can kind of get into this and dissect some of the deeper uh, mysteries, some of the deeper revelations, and really begin to kind of untwist some of this stuff. Because again, as I teach on Torah portions, my heart is always going to show Yahweh's redemptive heart. And I know that I get emotional every week when I talk about how redeeming he is and who we're being introduced to. Because I keep saying it's in this chapter, right? It's in this chapter that shows his character. And here we are again. I'm like, okay, all the other chapters were good. But this chapter really expands the character of Yahweh. Like, 
it, it just seems like every chapter I, I, I get into, I'm like, okay, now this is his redemptive nature. Okay. No, now this is his redemptive nature. It's almost as if he's taking us through a journey that you cannot ever deny his redemptive character or his redemptive nature and what it means for us and how we should respond because of his goodness. Um, anyways, it's just, eh, it's, it's all, it's all so good. So, um, so again, I just want to preface that that is the heart of, I mean, we could dissect a million things out of this chapter, but my heart is to dissect the things that reveal his character. And so that's, that's my heart's intent. So I want to give a little bit of historical remembrance before I start. And it's good. It's going to tie in. I'm not sure why I'm doing this first, but it's going to tie in. I want us to remember the three nations that were birthed from Noah. Do you guys remember when I talked about that? Noah had Japheth, Ham, and Shem. Shem birthed the Israelites. Ham birthed the Egyptians. And Japheth birthed the Greeks. So at this point in our history, we see that there's like three nations that are beginning to scatter or, or form. Um, and I don't have a lot of historical, you know, knowledge or wisdom on this, but I'm just going to say what I know. And then hopefully that'll lead you into, you know, dissecting more. Cause that's not the purpose of this Torah portion for right now. And it's not what I'm getting at, but it is a huge part of it because what we see in this chapter is another nation is born. Now I know Hagar is an Egyptian. So I, this is where I'm not knowledgeable. I'm not saying that what she birthed originated with Egyptians. But what I am saying is we begin to see a father be birthed of another nation. And so, um, so I think I am going to start backwards. So I, I think this is common. If it's not, Ishmael is considered the father of the Arabs. So up until this point, we've got Egyptians, we've got Greeks, and we've got Israelites. And in this chapter, we see another nation being birthed, and we see the, the, the nation of the Arabs, another um, you know, Middle, Middle Eastern nation. Like I said, I'm not, Hagar is Egyptian, so I'm not necessarily saying Arabs you know, stemmed from Egypt. But what we are seeing is that whole area, as people began to birth and scatter, began to birth um, sections of nations. That That is what I am saying. So I want to make sure that I lay that down foundationally, because now when you look at what Ishmael represents, Ishmael actually represents a, a few things. So, I'm, so again, I'm going to start backwards. It, because this whole chapter is about Hagar and Ishmael. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through the whole chapter, but I'm going to start with Ishmael. Ishmael is the father of the Arabs. They acknowledge Ishmael as their father. That's not something that the Bible is saying. That is what the Arab nation says. Muslims say that their father is Ishmael. Now, Hebrews, Gentiles should, Jews say Abraham is their father. So you can already begin to see what happens when we don't go back to the original intent because Abraham is the father of Ishmael, but they cut off an aspect of what Yahweh has for them when they say Ishmael is our father. 
But the powerful thing is this in this is we are brothers. We have a common father. And this chapter begins to release why his story is not done, because we know that the Arab nation has is not finished yet. But you can also recognize what has happened with the Arab nation when you read the prophecy over Ishmael. You will be at war with your brothers. They will be at war with you. What do we know about the Arab nation constantly causing war specifically with Christians and specifically with Jews? So this chapter gives us great insight into the greater picture of Yahweh and what he's doing. Because in his sovereignty, he could have completely just cut out that whole nation altogether and never even birthed them, which means he still has a plan. So I hope that I'm doing this okay because I'm working myself backwards, but I want us to understand the goodness of something that can seem so confusing. Well, why would you just, you know, at face value, give, you know, give Hagar a a son and then go and tell her that her son's going to cause war with everyone. Well, what he's doing is he's giving you insight into this nation, but he's also showing you the original that he met Hagar face to face, even in her Gentile state. Uh, you, You got, that is his nature. That is his character. Anyways, okay, I'm going to get more into that, but I wanted to just put that forward because we're seeing so much in this story um, that even, you know, affects us today. So we, again, I want to point out some of the first. So again, we see the Lord of angel, the, the angel of the Lord is a first. Um, the God who sees his name, Roe, is, uh, is uh, another first. And then I feel like there was one other first I wanted to point out. Maybe that's it. I mean, I'm sure that there are other firsts, but for right now, that is just, we're being, again, because the whole focus is, is he's, he's, um, he's introducing us to some things. And so as we get introduced, I always want to point out some of the first that we see. Okay. Um, this chapter, we have been introduced to the father of faith, right? Avram. Yet we've seen a lot from him, but in this chapter, we begin to see his faith tested or his faith. In this chapter, we begin to see faith be I tested is not necessarily the right word, but we begin to see how to function in the faith press. Um, we um, let me let me let me preface it with this: living outside of the of the world's culture to be set apart is already hard. It's like swimming against the current, right? There's a current of the world and we've got to go in the opposite direction. And that's our journey. And that is hard. Add on top of religious structures 
who have decided to flow with the current of the world, claiming that they're set apart, but they're going in the same direction. Add that to the mix. Meaning we're trying to get back to the original intent. We're trying to go after truth. We're, we're doing, we are completely set apart, that narrow road, right? It, you are really up against the current. It makes it difficult. We see in this chapter the difficulty of it. And we also see in this chapter what happens when the difficult comes. So again, I'm going to work myself backwards. In this chapter, we see Ishmael, yes, or Hagar, represents a foreigner, represents Egyptians, represents Gentile, represents, right? We see that, but in the spirit, you're also seeing two sons in opposition. This, this chapter starts the battle of two brothers. Ishmael's first. We just haven't met Isaac yet. So you have Ishmael that's birthed, but he is a man of war. In this chapter, war begins between nations and between brothers and in the spirit between sons of something. So you have a son of flesh in this chapter versus a son of promise. So I also want to preface that before we get into all this. You have a son of the flesh and that causes war. You're about to see, or you're not seeing yet, the son of promise that will birth the answer or birth freedom. So you're seeing a battle here between nations and, 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 and historical context, but you're also seeing the beginning of a war of what happens when you birth something out of the flesh. So there's, there's, there's the literal aspect of this chapter, and then there's the spiritual aspect of this chapter, which is what I'm getting into right now. Swimming against the current can cause us at times to choose to birth things out of our flesh or fix things, especially when we're confused and we think that what we're birthing is actually from Yahweh. I mean, think about it. We, oh, I'm trying to think of how to say this. Deception, let me, let me say it this way. Deception is when we try to rationalize that our way of doing things is also sanctified. Not so much that, I mean, if you're aware that you're doing things in and of yourself, that's, 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 that's one thing and that's great. But then, um. You want to take him out? Go ahead. Um, meaning, if you're aware that you're doing it in and of yourself, then that's really not deception because you're aware. The problem is, is when we choose to birth things out of our flesh or do things in our own might in order to fulfill the word of Yahweh and say that it's sanctified. Think about it. In this chapter, Yahweh's word was made manifest. Avram actually had a baby. He did, he did produce an heir. 
legally, culturally. He actually has the promise in his hands. And yet Yahweh says, that's the son of flesh. That's the son of war. So you're seeing Yahweh's word actually happen, but how they came about the word is what matters. So now it adds another dimension of faith. You're not just supposed to be obedient to his word, but you're supposed to be obedient in how to walk out his word because you can manifest Yahweh's word in and of your own strength. Now, two things happen when you do that. You don't, you're not pressed in the faith walk. You're not taught how to live by faith. And number two, you just totally didn't, you, you, you just didn't glorify Yahweh. You got the glory. Yahweh didn't get the glory. So this gets tricky. And this is why I got so emotional when I boxed, I think on Shabbat, when I said, you know, get me on my face and teach me. I hope I'm not too late that I have not conceived something of my flesh. Now, obviously, of course, I've conceived things out of my flesh. I'm not saying just now I'm becoming aware of that. But literally in my current situation, the things that I'm battling, please help me to not birth an Ishmael. Help me to not conjure up a, how to, to, um, to, to bring about his word. Let me give a, a very real example. Yahweh says expansion. Awesome. Thank you for that word. That's why I said, I need time. I need the, I need, I need the, the intimate, show me the stars, show me how you're going to do this. Because in, in you saying expansion without the how could easily put us in a position where we start birthing some Ishmael's because we decide, well, this is what expansion looks like. Does that make sense? Like any, any one of us can fall trapped to that. You can take, go back to chapter 12, hold on to his word. And then all of a sudden you're birthing still his word. And you can say, look, it's his word. But because you did it and he didn't do it. Now we have war between what is birthed out of the flesh versus what is birthed out of promise. And the scary thing is either way, they're still both birthed. So that's where war comes in. Okay. So, so I want to speak into walking and, and, and going against the current because we have to be so strong in our convictions to go against the current because that is the great deception is to say that what I'm doing to bring about his promises is also sanctified when in reality I'm doing it in and of myself, right? That's the great deception. So in order to not fall trapped to that deception, we've got to be strong in going against the current to truly wait on Yahweh and to truly hear him and be obedient to how he's going to do something. Okay. So, and here's why I'm bringing up the current. Because I want you guys to understand this isn't, this chapter is not out of context. In, in, in Middle Eastern times and in that time frame, it was completely and 100 200% culturally acceptable that if the wife did not produce, that a maidservant would give a legal heir to the father. 
and they would become a surrogate and give the baby to the wife. That was culture. That was not Yahweh. I'm not saying that that was normal for Yahweh. I'm saying that was culture. But that was not Yahweh. So there's, 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 there's a couple things in here that, that brings us about. First of all, we are dealing with the single most important covenant issue, a son, an heir. So we just saw in the last chapter that the promise, his how is through an heir. Now we are still dealing with the single most important covenant issue, which is an heir, and they are barren. They, they still have not produ produced. And I talked about this last week, but if you notice, they were 10 years into this thing. So 10 years of their life have gone by since the word came about and they have not formulated, they, they don't have an heir. So it was completely, Sarah's not crazy is what I'm getting at. It was completely and totally reasonable and culturally accepted to do or offer what she did. It would be a legal error for Abram. And if you think about it, Sarah could be thinking, look, I think I'm going to rationalize this. The word was given to my husband, not me. Yahweh never said you and Sarah. I mean, you know what I mean? It was Avram. Here's your descendants. So Sarah's probably thinking as a good wife, well, let me legally, I'm still barren. Let me legally do this for you because the word is over your life and this would give you a legal error, meaning it was completely reasonable. It wasn't like the things that we come up with in order to produce Yahweh's words are completely normal. They're completely reasonable is what I'm getting at. Um, it would have been a legal error and it would have fulfilled the word for, for, Abr for, uh, for Avram. And she's probably thinking that word wasn't necessarily for me. Okay. Now we are introduced to Hagar. And it's very clear. Well, there's a couple, well, there's a couple things that are going to come up. Number one, I just basically introduced instant gratification. Now, instant gratification probably still, still sounds weird because they were already waiting for 10 years. But my point is, is that when you think Yahweh's word's not coming quick enough, we will try to fix it. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because you're going to see how fast your fixing works. <laughs> Yahweh gives a promise. 10 years go by. She gives over Hagar. Well, I'm, I'm jumping ahead. She gives over Hagar. And all of a sudden you see in one sentence. Think about this. She gives over Hagar. I want to read this. Oh, okay. Let, let, I, oh my gosh, you guys are so much. Let me point out something else before I get into this. Sarah and Abram did not forget about Yahweh. They didn't just go, well, I guess he sucks and we're not going to serve him anymore. So let's do this. Look at, look at in the sentence in verse two. So Sarah said to Abram, look now, Adonai has prevented me from having children. They're acknowledging Adonai and even saying Adonai is the one who's doing this. So it's not like they just fell trapped to this deception because they just forgot to serve Yahweh. They are serving him and even acknowledging he did this. <laughs> this is so personal. 
it'll be easy to read a chapter if they're like, well, wow, after 10 years, you completely forgot about the father. Well, they didn't. They're actually acknowledging the father and saying he's the one that made me barren. <laughs> okay. So in order to fix Yahweh's doing, look at how quick this happens. Verse, um, verse, the very next verse. Look at all these action words. Abram listened. Sarah, uh, Abram's wife, took her slave girl, Hagar. So he listened. She takes, gave her, takes her, gave her. He goes in. She becomes pregnant. Right? Like, in one sentence, 10 years, they're barren. They decide to fix it, and immediately... He listens, she takes, she gives, he goes in, she becomes. And most of us stop there and go, praise the Lord. Look, look at, look at how good he is. Look how quick he showed up. And then we see later on in the chapter, this is a, this is a son of flesh. This is a son at war. So when I talk about instant gratification, the quick things are not necessarily from Yahweh. <laughs> I want to introduce us to Hagar because this is this is super important because it's it, for some reason he doesn't just say she's the slave girl sorry I'm drinking my coffee as well he decides to say she's an Egyptian this gives us some context that most likely Avram was given her when he was in Egypt 10 years ago remember Pharaoh had a dream that he was blessed and gave him a bunch of things Okay, so that shows us that this Egyptian maidservant has been with them this whole time. This is important. What we birth with usually is with us the whole time. The world, church culture, the things that are with us all the time that are not from Yahweh. Now, I'm going to get into it because Yahweh does something with this Egyptian. And this is what he does with the Gentiles, but it, but, but for right now, how, how, how do I say this? Okay, hold on. Let me just, let me give the name for Hagar. The word Hagar means stranger or sojourner. Essentially Gentile. Now, Torah does not have anything against strangers, but they are not a part of the covenant promise. They are not recipients of God's blessing. They are not. Which is why Yeshua matters to us. Because you, without Yeshua, unless you are, an is unless you are birthed from Shem, Avraham is your father, unless you are an Israelite, you are not a set-apart nation. You are not his. But the promise to Abraham was through you, all the nations will receive, all the nations will be blessed. Well, that's because he bears the seed of Yeshua. Yeshua gives us access to where now it's neither Jew nor Gentile. And we get to see this before Yeshua's time. It's not like Yeshua stepped on the scene and all of a sudden, oh, there's this 
awakening. Yahweh's been speaking to this awakening ever since chapter 16, Genesis. The Gentile who leaves from affliction, scatters, goes out from the house. (laughs) Guys, she leaves the house. Yahweh meets her, sees her, and says, go back home. I know I say it with every chapter. The gospel is in this chapter. I I know I've said that in every chapter, but it really is in this chapter. (laughs) I mean, it's in all the chapters, but the gospel is in every single chapter. This is so, this is so good. So, okay. Um, all right. So I want to make sure that I am explaining who Hagar is. Now, this is what I'm, this is like one of the bold statements I really want to get at. What I'm trying to get at is culture has displaced conviction. So there's a powerful statement in there that says that they were, they were in this for 10 years and it's actually attached to the Egyptian, took her slave girl, Hagar, the Egyptian, after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan and gave her to Abram. Why, why does he mention 10 years right there? Well, number one, it gives you some context that they've been waiting for the promise for 10 years. Awesome. We know that. Number two, why did he say 10 years attached to the Egyptian? To me, that's showing me that that's because this Egyptian woman has been with him this long. So the culturally acceptable thing in that time was to give the main maid servant as a surrogate. But that's what happens when you allow culture to overpower your conviction, especially when you are so deceived that you take that culture and say that it's Adonai's culture, right? And then, and then birth something from that when it really wasn't ever his culture, but it doesn't mean something's not going to be birthed. This son was not birthed out of his culture, but he's going to do something with it. So that is, that is a huge part of this. Um, okay. Um, yes, I just, so again, this is all, this all has to do with lessons of faith or, um, that you know what it looks like when we're you know we don't want to struggle against the very hand of god uh when there's roadblocks in our lives um what path does that send you into does that send you into more faith and trusting or does it send you into um uh like i I guess what i'm trying to say is do you look at yahweh's roadblocks as blessings and allowing those roadblocks to sanctify us? Or do we attempt to find a detour around those roadblocks in our own ingenuity? And then we end up finding ourselves fighting against the hand of Yahweh. We, we, we find ourselves at war. The, 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 that's really the only two options. The, the, those are the only two options. You can either take those roadblocks and allow it to sanctify you. Or you could take those roadblocks, try to detour, go around, which we've talked about this with Kingdom Air's birthday coming up. We've talked about through the cross versus around the cross. We don't want to go around something in order, because going around something, you're still going to produce something. It doesn't mean you're not going to produce. It's just, what are you producing? War? Or do you go through it, which is usually the harder road. At this point, it was 10 years. And then you produce the son of promise. Okay. So... So my point in all of that is that this whole 10 year thing is to show you can be living with something for 10 years and it's culture, not conviction. 
And that's what I'm talking about going against the current because the, the, the ways of this world and really the ways of Christianity or the ways of religion has caused things to be so normal that they're not Yahweh's heart and it's producing war, not promise. Now you'll see why people leave or break relationship or have to go to a different church or why there's war within the church. Because to me, we're constantly birthing sons of flesh when that is not at all, but, but it's culturally acceptable. It's culturally acceptable to have a Sunday morning service with three songs, announcements, and a preaching, and then no relationship all week long. And it's totally normal to decide, I don't want to go to that church, so I'm going to go to a different church because I didn't like how this was. It's totally normal. It's not normal. It's, or, or I should say it's normal. It's culture. It's not conviction. And Yahweh is after conviction, not culture. And so, um, so that's what that's showing me because you can be doing, doing something for 10 years. And then all of a sudden Yahweh's like, yeah, that's, but that's not what's supposed to birth something. So, okay. Um, all right. Now we've got this interesting dynamic who messed up here, Sarah or Avram, <laughs> obviously you can look at it as like, well, Sarah is ridiculous. I mean, why did you do something like that? And then immediately get mad at Avram for doing it. Okay, I understand that. But the perspective on Sarah's side is she probably thought she was doing, you know, him a, a service because it, like I said, going back into realistic mistake. Then you've got Avram who good and bad, right? The good thing is, is he fully supports his wife. I mean, he listened to her. He submits to her. He obviously honors her. <laughs> he also does something really powerful and tells Sarah, look, you can do what you want with your maidservant. So he chooses Sarah. Sarah is his covenant partner. So we see this great characteristic of Avram, who's like listening and then, you know, being obedient to his wife. I mean, so, I mean, it, it is a powerful thing. Women have the ability to discern, navigate, manage, and, 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 and men should take heed to that. So this is all good. And you should always choose your wife. Okay, Avram did all that. But does this storyline sound a lot like Genesis 3? <laughs> Women have this ability to manage and listen and navigate, but they also are filled with doubt and rationalization and, 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 and being deceived, essentially, and listening to the wrong voice. That's where the men that's where the man comes in and says, let me seek the face of Yahweh. Let, let me be the head of this. There, there's not even a conversation. He doesn't even say, Sarah, can we talk about this? Like, let's seek Yahweh's face on this. That's what a head does. Let me submit to my wife. Let me listen to my wife. Let me take heed to her. But let me ultimately be the head of the home by loving her, by submitting to my father. And we don't see Avram acknowledging Adonai at all. This is the father of faith. He doesn't, he doesn't, he just listens to Sarah. He lets her be the head. So now we have Genesis three. So yeah, I mean, Sarah messed up, but I mean, Avram could have been the head just like through one man, sin entered the earth and through one man, freedom will come. Right. So there's this, there's this, um, uh, a woman might be all over the place, but it's the man, it, it, it Eve listened to the serpent. But it was Adam who didn't speak up. So you have this, 
char- this this character of Avram, who obviously, he, like I said, the positive side is he chooses his wife. He does listen to his wife. But at the same time, there is this aspect of him where, to me, he's not innocent in this, just like Adam wasn't. And I take that because the renewed covenant says through one man. And so the weight or the authority falls on the head of the household to be able to seek Yahweh's face, to be able to navigate um, how to love and submit, right, to to to, it, to his wife. It, so my point in all of this is that Avram just listens to Sarah, but doesn't ever say, well, let's take this to Yahweh and see if this is the direction we should go. So uh, the reason why I'm bringing all of this up is to make this very practical. Not only can I, as a wife, conjure up, well, this sounds like Yahweh, and totally fall trapped to cultural overconviction. I need a quick fix, and I'm actually trying to help Yahweh, right? I'm a woman. I'm a helpmate. There's a fine line between helping my husband and helping Yahweh. Amen, ladies? <laughs> I, I mean, is it just me? But I mean, if, I, if, if in my bones, if in my nature, I am a helpmate, it is very hard to not fall trapped to helping Yahweh do his thing right it's a gifting we have it just has to be in right order well right order is under a man right order is under a husband um and, and if you're not married you're under yahweh right either way it's the same thing i i have an i have an amazing gift but it has to surrender and submit to the head so here sarah's got this great ingenuity but avram doesn't protect her and doesn't submit to yahweh so here we have uh, the, the, the collide. So, and then, and then, like I said, going back, I'm, I'm getting into, um, I'm getting into how quick, I mean, Avram's been waiting for a son for 10 years and in one night, in one night, he has an heir. I mean, this is the epitome, in my opinion, of instant gratification or culture that says, see, that was God. Look how quick while others are still waiting for 25 years. And it looks like Satan's hand is on their lives. And it's not, it's the hand of God. Because we're willing to wait to birth the promise than to short circuit ourselves and birth war. Okay. So, all right. And the other thing that this does, which is so powerful, is we begin to see some fallings and we've already seen the failings of Avram. We saw that he sold out his wife when he went to Egypt. You know, I mean, we, 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 we've seen some things, but what's so powerful is our father, the father, father Abraham, right? Like the father of the Hebrews, he is the Hebrew, right? He is our, he is the promise that is carrying through the seed, right? Or carrying the seed through. So what is so powerful about this is that we begin to see that Yahweh uses people. He d- um, he, okay, so Yahweh doesn't use people to, like, he doesn't, uh, what am I trying to say? God does not use perfect men, basically is what I'm saying. He doesn't use perfect sons and daughters. He doesn't pick, he doesn't pick perfect fathers and mothers, but he uses, and he uses people that he can redeem and cleanse to enable them to do his service. So this is a powerful thing because we're learning 
from Avram, and we're also seeing his shortcomings. And this is a good thing because then we can see how Yahweh works and um, in his goodness in that. Okay, so there's that. And then I wanted to get into um, uh, yeah, anyways, I think I've already addressed this, but basically just a couple of questions that I have is from Abram is, you know, like, where was your leadership? Why didn't you consult God about this? How come you didn't assist Sarah in the idea? So there's just, you know, there's just, there's just a few things in there. And I think that that's um, a good thing for us to recognize because then it shows us, you know, um, how Yahweh uses and what he uses, because in the end, everything about faith, you know, some, somebody might ask, why would he, why would he even do that? Why did he make him wait 25 years? I don't know the answer to that. But what I do know is that when he does it, he gets glorified. If I do it, I get glorified. So even if it's just for the purpose that he wanted to show off because Yahweh is king and he's the one that's going to do it and he wants to produce the miracle and he wants there to be no way that you could have any kind of say or ingenuity or any part of it because he just wants to be glorified, then that's why. You know what I mean? Because that, that, that's what, that's what happens. I mean, obviously it presses us in our character and it does a bunch of things, but if it's, if it does anything, it glorifies Yahweh when we wait on him. Okay. I want to talk about Hagar a little bit so that we can understand why things turned real fast. So with all that said, quick fix, one sentence after 10 years, our ingenuity is pretty good, right? She's pregnant. All of a sudden, things completely flip and Sarah freaks out and says, the wrong done to me is because of you. I myself placed my slave girl in your embrace. Now that she saw that she became pregnant in her eyes, I'm belittled. So here's, here's what's happening here. Sarah's not just mad at Avram because he got a baby. It was her idea. That's not why she's mad. She's mad because in culturally acceptable, what happens is the baby, um, actually, where did I read that? You guys, there's a whole teach. Why am I just now remembering this? There's a whole teaching on, um, it's even in the scriptures where a surrogate will birth a child and the way they choose to birth the child, they actually sit on the lap of the one who couldn't have a baby. And then as the baby's born, that baby becomes the legal heir of the mom that she was sitting on the lap of. I'll have to come back to you guys about that. I feel like I just read that culturally and I don't remember what I was studying. Um, but the baby was supposed to be Sarah's. Um, but what, but what also can happen is because the maidservant was able to do it and Sarah couldn't, Avram has a choice to raise the maidservant up into the position of a wife. Now, obviously he does not have any desire to make her in the same vein as his wife, because we see later on, he says, look, she's your slave girl. You do with her with what you want. He gave Sarah back her rightful place, but Hagar started to act like I'm going to be in Sarah's place. Now you have to hear this in the spirit. When I said that Hagar represents the Gentiles, you can see replacement theology in this chapter. Sarah is the promise. 
she is the mother of the promise. <laughs> and here comes Hagar, a Gentile, who says, well, I'll do it. I can do this. And starts to act haughty and arrogant, which is why she tells her husband that she has belittled her, that she's looking at her belittled. I'm better than you, you guys, this is, this is, this is such a big deal. Hagar starts looking at a Hebrew, like I'm better than you. And that is what caused Sarah to cause affliction to say, get out of my house. I mean, you can see, and that is, and that's how the Jews are acting now. You act like you can do all this. Get out, get out from me. Division. But you've got Gentiles acting like I'll be the one to birth the promise. I mean, I, I, you guys, I, I feel like my hand is over my head. I'm just like, why does anybody fall trapped to replacement theology? Church is in, uh, Jews are out, right? Th th this doesn't make any sense. Go back to Hagar, go back to this chapter. Anyways, so Hagar isn't, I mean, now, first of all, Hagar absolutely was, was an innocent pawn in all of this. She was completely used. Absolutely. But once she had something, she got haughty, prideful, and began to belittle Sarah. And so, because like I said, culturally, the surrogate can be raised into a position as a wife. And obviously, Avram did not choose that. Um, he did choose Sarah, but that's, that's what was happening. Now, again, if you look, if you read a little deeper, you read between the lines, what happens in the family, there's some dynamics when you choose to walk this way, right? Like, I mean, this isn't theoretical is what I'm saying. You've got Sarah living in a home with Avram. You've got a surrogate who, who has been able to produce something that she couldn't, starts to walk haughty in the home. I mean, you just got family dynamics going all over the place. She's pregnant and, and, and it doesn't end. If you go to the end of the chapter, she ends up going home and they birth a child. And that child of war is in their house. I mean, talk about blended families, right? I mean, you you've got you've got some you've got some dynamics here to 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 navigate. So ultimately, what Sarah was saying was, I can't handle this anymore. I'm done. Like, I like these family dynamics are getting. This is getting too much. Like, we're not we're not doing this. Um, and probably well within her right to be like, okay, no, that's not that's not what I saw. That's not what that's not what we're not doing this. And so she basically says, um, uh, something, you know, has been done wrong to me. And it wasn't because Hagar had a baby. It was because of the way Hagar was acting because of the baby that she had, um, because she, it says that she was belittled. Um, so I just wanted to clarify when it says may Adonai judge between you and me, what she's saying is, is you're going to have to pick me or Hagar. Essentially, that's what she was saying was you're, you're going to have to pick which direction you want to go. Do you want to you want to you want to remain barren? You're going to have to come with me or you're going to have to you're going to have to go with her because the, this family dynamic isn't working anymore. <laughs> so I just wanted to um, I wanted to talk about that. Um, uh, let's see. Okay. Um, okay. I did. I talked about instant gratification. 
Yeah. And I already talked about, um, I already talked about, um, you know, who God uses. I just, you know, I want to, I just want to hone that in that apart from God's help, we really are weak. And Avram, the father of faith, shows his weakness outside of Yahweh. Um, but this is really cool because we recognize that God doesn't take the strong and the mighty as trophies, but that he actually, you know, uses the weak in order to display his power. And so, um, so, and we're going to see that play out here in the next couple of chapters. Um, okay. I want to point out that this whole thing with Hagar envisioning that she is going to be the primary role of Abram's wife um, is an eternal struggle. And this eternal struggle struggle is between Sarah and Hagar, which is kind of what I was speaking to about, you know, Jew and Gentile. I mean, we're talking about an eternal struggle here um, of being in a position being and then how we handle that position. So, um, okay. Um, the other thing that I was talking about when I was bringing up family dynamics that I wanted to just point out is that when we don't have Yahweh's help or when we try to do things on our own, we have to recognize that we don't live in an isolated world, that we are the only ones that are affected, that our choices do affect others. And so this is, this is a huge, this is a huge aspect of, um, what gets multiplied. You get things multiply in the lives of others, but we also know that the opposite is true, that when you sow righteousness, you will affect others as well. But I think that, you know, just for us to understand that disregarding God's ways and going into culture or going in our own way, it will affect, it will affect others. And that's what was happening as the household was affected at this time, not just because there was a baby, but because of the, the response to how to walk out that life. So, um, so now we see Avram has now said, do with her what you want. And so Sarah decides to afflict her. And Sarah basically afflicts her so much that the slave girl scatters. She leaves. Um, I mean, there, I mean, there's some powerful things in that too, but I might just leave that there, leave, leaving the house. Um, she, when I say that, I'm, I'm thinking of the, when, when Yeshua says, I came for the lost sheep. This is what he's talking about. He, he came for the ones that leave the house, like that left the house that are, um, anyways, we see that here because it would have been so easy to be like, well, yeah, I mean, she's, she's a Gentile and all right, let's, let's erase her from the story. She left. So, so, so we see that he has the ability to erase her from the story, but instead something really powerful happens. An encounter happens, a powerful face-to-face -face happens. And then he tells her to get back in the story. Only Yahweh did that, not Hagar, not Sarah, not Avram. Yahweh himself said, you need to go home and chose to keep her in the story. This is super powerful for us <laughs> because while we left the house and became scattered, he came to redeem, show us his face and tells us to go home because he still wants us in the story, which is why we don't want to walk arrogant like we carry the story we're a part of it and we need to be home to do it okay 
let me stop there and then I'm going to start to discuss this encounter that Hagar has. So this is this is how amazing this is. Is in this I I know I mean all of this speaks to me, but the harsh treatment to Hagar is matched and exceeded by the mercies of Yahweh. So she meets God in the person named the angel of Hashem. It's a face-to-face experience. Um, and the reason why we know it's God is because he prophesies the ability to order her future. Nobody can do that except for Yahweh. So we see that Yahweh basically reveals himself face to face. Now, it's it's hard it's hard to it's hard to get into this because there's there's several scriptures that say that nobody has seen Yahweh. So a lot of uh, uh, commentary and a lot of people believe that when Yahweh reveals himself in this way, it's actually Yeshua incarnate. Uh, so, but regardless, the Trinity who or, uh, I shouldn't even say the Trinity. I'm trying to erase some things from my vocabulary, but who he is reveals himself face to face. Um, and then this, this powerful thing comes forth because she recognizes him as Yahweh and calls him and and calls him Hashem. So she, let me see, um, found her by the spring of water in the wilderness. Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm fleeing. And then the angel of Adonai says, return to your mistress. Oh, trying to think of where it says, because she calls him. So she called Adonai who was speaking to her. You are the God who sees me. So, um, the, basically what's happening right now is the invisible Yahweh to Avram has now made himself manifest in person to Hagar. And this powerful thing happens because it's, 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 it, it's super important what she calls him. She obviously recognizes him as, as Yahweh, right? Like the almighty. Um, but she says, you are the one who sees me. So it, it, I don't know if I'm going to be able to explain this, but basically there's, there's like a play on words that's happening here. What's happening here is. This this word row e actually is saying the God who sees. Now, some translations do not do this word justice because it'll say the God of vision. You are the God of vision, right? Because he gave her a vision. It's not, it's not that he is the God who sees because he gives you a vision. He's not a God of vision. I mean, he is, but that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is he is actually the God who sees it's, um, it's, uh, it's like, um, it's basically it's a noun versus a verb. So it's not, he's a seeing God, but he is one who sees. And it, I, I don't know if this is going to make sense, but it, it's, it's, it's a very powerful word. Word. If you want to get into it, it's roi. And, and, and what's happening here is she is saying he sees. 
So he's revealing himself as one who sees, but she also is seeing. And this is where I get the revelation that this is a face-to-face -face interaction. Adonai Roi, it is a it's a face-to-face -face revelation of his name because it's not that he sees her like he it, like he he physically sees her but he is one who sees he 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 is the sea <laughs> i'm not probably making anyone's any sense um but basically my point is is that he's not just a god of vision who gives people vision or the ability to see but he sees her and in seeing her, she sees him. And, and, and that is just a, it's a powerful interaction, which is why I think Moshe takes time to say, and that's why this fountain is called, uh, I mean, literally the fountain is called, um, let me see if I can find it. Where did I write it? My notes. The, this well belongs to one who lives while seeing. Anyways, there's a lot in all of that. But, okay, so after she has this in, encounter, and isn't it so cool that he says, where, where have you come from and where are you going? I mean, does Yahweh speak to you guys about that? Oh, I'm finding you here throwing a fit with the harsh treatment that you've been given all, all alone over here. And Yahweh's like, where, where did you come from and where are you going? And then he's like, yeah, you're going to go back home. You're going to go back to where you just got done throwing a fit. Like, you're, you're going to go back to what, you're going to go back to what made you throw a fit. I'm going I'm to send you back. <laughs> Anyways, I mean, I could go on that forever, but all right. So he basically tells Hagar, you need to submit to Sarah and humble yourself. Think about this, knowing who Hagar is as a foreigner to the gospel, to Gentiles, go home and humble yourself. It's not that she was pregnant. It's that she was prideful because she thought she was going to replace Sarah. You're not going to replace Sarah, but you're going to go home and you're going to come under Sarah. That is the order. This son of flesh is going to submit to the son of promise. Go home. I mean, say law. <laughs> um, but while he tells her to go home and submit, he does this, he does this, um, powerful thing where he obviously acknowledges her sees her and she gets a revelation of yahweh now she knows who avram has been serving remember she's an egyptian she sees him and submits and calls him by name and listens and goes home so so like the egyptian or the gentile that's throwing a fit runs away and God Almighty, in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty, reveals himself to Hagar, not, not Avram, not Sarah. The, the, the angel of the Lord, Yahweh himself, reveals himself to her. So like, yes, you're going to have to submit. And yes, you have to go home. But like, she has an intimate face-to-face relationship with god almighty i mean isn't that i mean when you when you look at it twofold yes yahweh was like okay little girl you know nice fit throwing go home 
you could look at it from that lens, but you could also look at it from the lens of he gave her something he has not even given to Noah yet. He gave her something to empower her to go home and to submit. Oh, it's just so good. So she goes back into the story. He intervenes. He hears her cries. He sees her affliction. Now, remember, she's not one that receives his covenant promises. But he sees her. He sees her affliction. Now, think about it with the Arabs. Same thing. The Arab nation. He sees their affliction. He sees them. And he answers their cry. But he wants them to go home and to submit. Now, the reason why we know that he hears her cry is Ishmael. The name Ishmael, you guys know this when I taught on the Shema. Ishmael is Shema El. To hear Yahweh. So this is shown to her through by giving her that prophecy. Prophecy, you are pregnant and you're gonna you're gonna birth uh, you're gonna birth your son, you're gonna name him Ishmael. That is the name. I hear you, you've heard me. God had heard. That is Ishmael. And he responded. He, he, anyways. Okay. All right. So here we have the dilemma where he tells her to go home. Because he tells her the people of the, the well, let me just read it. He tells her to go home, but this is what she's left with. You're going to bear a son. You're going to name him Ishmael because I've heard you. For Adonai has heard your affliction. Amazing. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And away from all his brothers will he dwell. And she still says, you are a God who sees me. And decides to go home. All right. Well, we are, we end this chapter with the dilemma of, guess what? In the same house, we have to deal with the son of flesh that is at odds with everyone who's going to dwell away from his brothers and the, and the potential future son of promise. And that is a battle that still rages today. The battle of the son of flesh over or under the battle of a son of promise. He does not decide to take the son of flesh out of it and just kill him. He could have left him out in the wilderness and never talked to her. And they would have been done. And it would, would have only been about the promise. But instead, he says, go back into the story. And here we have the battle of those two things in front of us. That is super powerful to understand his character and his nature. That he will honor our decisions. He does, he does honor us. He could wipe out all the things that we do wrong, but instead he's going to use it for his glory. He's going to use it for his story because he ultimately has a plan. And so he decides to not wipe them out of the story, but to get them back into the story. And at the same time, it gives us insight to be able to see what it is that we're battling today between the son of flesh and the son of promise. And you begin to see the gospel in a new way when every single time it talks about through Yeshua, a new creation, because that is the battle of our flesh. The, it's the battle of us versus the battle of the promise and, and, and residing in that promise. And this is a perfect story of how to make it real, not just, well, yeah, that makes sense, but to make it real. Um, because we know 
that relying upon the flesh is going to have ongoing consequences for everyone in that family. A man of war, not peace, was about to be born within this home. So we're left at the end of the chapter to go home, recognizing that there is this donkey of a man that's going to be against everyone is about to be born in, in their home. But that was Yahweh's doing. Um, let me see if I want to get further into this. Okay, yes, I do want to because I always want to bring some insight on Paul, which I think ultimately is us fulfilling that whole vision of the early church. It's not necessarily the word that dad has, but I do like that there are these apostolic um, scriptures that go along because it does introduce us to the renewed covenant with the fresh light of the Torah. And so I personally have loved engaging Paul's words because it just helps me to continually untwist last night's season. If you choose to read in Galatians, just let me just preface. You see this, he basically, Paul, Paul is explaining the two different sons. But you have to remember the context of who he's speaking to. Because he basically says, tell me, you who want to be under Torah, don't you understand the Torah? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and one by free. But one, the son of the slave woman who was born naturally, while the other, the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Okay, kind of doing good so far. Now these things are being treated allegorically for these are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, giving birth to slavery. This is Hagar. But this Hagar is in Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem for, the, for she is in slavery along with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and shout, you who suffer no labor pains, for, for more are the children of the desolate than those um, than of the one has, oh my gosh, for more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, you are children of promise. But just as at that time, the one born according to the flesh persecute, okay, sorry. But just as at that time, the one born according to the flesh persecuted the one born according to the Ruach. So it is now. But what does the scripture say? Drive out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son. So then brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Okay. Ultimately, Paul is speaking a son of the, he, I'm not reading that like he's saying, if you're under Torah, you're a slave because that would be born at Mount Sinai. And he's not saying that if you're born of the promise, then you're free. But you can see how easily it is to read these scriptures and be like, oh, well, there's two covenants. One is Torah and one is Yeshua. They're in opposition to one another. And I guess I need to be born of the free and know that they're going to be with me. The ones that are slaves are going to be with me. And so I need to drive them out. Okay. 
at the same time, if you understand who he's speaking to, he's speaking to the concept that it's your flesh that gives you covenant relationship, not by the spirit. So he's speaking to people like Jews, for example, who believe you have to be circumcised and you have to um, walk according to the flesh, which means your genealogy, you have to be this for you to have a relationship with Yahweh. What Paul is saying is that's not true because if you're a son of promise through faith, you now have a covenant relationship and you're not walking according to the flesh. So according to the flesh can mean two things. We've read it as according to the flesh, like according to your fleshly desires, or it's literally walking according to your flesh in and of yourself, your genes gives you just free access. And that's not true because Hagar is a, is a slave genealogy he's he's making um a distinction here because essentially ishmael abraham was his father but because she was a slave woman he's making reference to that your genes are not what gives you the promise but your faith in the promise is what gives you the promise so he's talking to people who are saying, all you have to do is be Torah observant and get circumcised because either A, you have to be a Jew or B, you have to be a Gentile that becomes a, I don't know how to say the word, but it's a, a proselyte where you change your ethnicity by circumcision to become a Jew. And if you do that, then you are born into the promise. That's not, Paul's saying that is not what this is. So he's, he's, he's basically preaching that you are the son of Isaac, not by your genes, but by faith. And pointing out that Ishmael is a son of the flesh based on everything we just pointed out, you know, by the spirit. But clearly it can't be based on genes because because Abram, they have the same dad. So again, going back to what I was talking about, you've got two, basically, what would that be? Half brothers that have the same dad. They're brothers, but one's the son of flesh and one's the son of promise. Well, why? It's the same father. So I believe what, what Paul is doing is pointing out what causes you to be in this new bloodline is not by the flesh, but by promise. And that's what he's talking about there. That's why he can say for more of the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. He's talking about, because it's not about birthing us. It's not about birthing in the flesh. It's not about becoming a Jew, but it's about the son of promise. So let me see if I can read this better. He's paralleling Ishmael, the son of flesh, to those who believe that they can find right standing with God on the basis of their e ethnic status. So this is why it gets confusing when you re re read the renewed covenant, because here I am telling you guys that a Gentile is Hagar. <laughs> For the concept of where we are, Hagar is a Gentile. Sarah is a Hebrew, right? 
Paul goes and twists it and says that Hagar is a Jew. I'm not saying he's saying Hagar's a Jew, but he's attributing Hagar to the Jews who think that by the flesh you get in. Does that make sense? So what's confusing is if you don't have a solid ground in Torah, you can read Galatians and be like, oh, see, anything birthed from Hagar is um, Arabs who are not Torah, or um, sorry, anything born of Hagar is Jews. And it's all Torah observant people because they're slaves. They're slaves to the word, uh, to the word, right? I mean, it, I hope this is making sense. I want to untwist this because yes, Paul is saying that Hagar is like the Jews because they believe that the son of flesh by their genes gives them covenant relationship when in reality they are living in the promised land while under complete condemnation and in complete slavery. Those that follow Yeshua are sons and enjoy true freedom, not by the flesh, but by the promise. So when you read Galatians, it'll get confusing if you read it in the way that Christianity has read it, that Paul's trying to say that if you follow Torah, you're a Hagar. Well, I just preached for two hours how Hagar, if anything, is like us who scattered and was told to come back into the house. Paul's just making the point that if you are a son of flesh, you don't have a covenant relationship just because you're a son of flesh. Because think about it, Ishmael in and of itself was a son of, uh, uh, not of promise, but like had the bloodline. But Ishmael is, is not, is not the, the, um, Isaac will carry the promise. I hope that's making sense. So I, again, I always want to bring up how Paul who he's talking to matters because he's trying to point out if all you do is follow Torah, you aren't going to make it, which we've been saying. But I also have enough scriptures to back up that if all you do is um, say that you follow Yeshua and you don't follow Torah, you're not going to make it either. That's why Revelation says you have to have both. So he's speaking to a group of people that are basically saying they don't need Yeshua. They don't need to be the son of promise because they're the son of flesh. And he's saying, no, you're Ishmael. But that gets confusing when we just untwisted who Ishmael really is. And so you've got to understand it multidimensionally and look at it from all sides to really, truly understand the heart of what it is that Paul's saying. So I hope that that makes sense. But I wanted to make sure that I pointed that out. So in case anybody reads that, they're like, well, wait a second. Mom just said that Hagar is like a Gentile and Paul's saying that Hagar is like a Jew. The point is, is Hagar is anything that causes slavery. Because it was out of our own works, out of our own flesh, instead of waiting on the promise. Whether you're on one side of the spectrum or not, either Jew or Gentile without the other one produces an Ishmael is what I'm getting at. It depends on where you're standing. And the problem with Christianity is we've stood in a place to read these scriptures as if the Jews are the problem. And so either, so to me, it's a pendulum swing. Either side is still a son of flesh. You can be a Gentile and have a son of flesh. And you could be a Jew and have a son of flesh. That's why we have to be children of the promise. So I hope that that makes sense. But the point is, is that it is an allegory and he's making um, a connection to slavery, but anything can bound you in slavery. It's not, oh, look at us. We're not Torah bound. They're the problem. Okay. Well, he's going to flip that on you real fast. Does that make sense? You can't look at it from one way or the other, but being able to look at it from both perspectives shows you what being a son of promise really means.
Thank you for listening to this message from Kingdom Heirs International. If you have received insight and revelation with this message, we invite you to claim that revelation by trading on the trading floor with this ministry. You can do that at kingdomheirsflag.org. Thank you.